Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. Let us pray. Our Father God, we come before you this morning as a small group of your people. Uh, We thank you for the privilege it is to be able to meet and to gather. We thank you for the uniqueness of gathering together as your people and for the promise that you are with us, present by your Holy Spirit when two or more of us gather in this way. I thank you for each one that was here this morning at our 8.30 service and here again today. We thank you for our church family. We pray for those who aren't here, whether they're unable to be here or um, uh, yeah, can't make it at this time. Um, we pray for each one and we ask that you would continue to be at work in their lives, drawing them closer to you and, uh, and helping them to be the people you've called them to be in Christ Jesus. We pray at this time um, for our world and we thank you for uh, the confidence that we get from your word that's been written uh, millennia ago and has been shaping and forming the hearts of your people in every time of history and And so our time is no different and we thank you for the confidence we can have in who you are as the sovereign God, uh, the God who's um, over all and in all, the God who through Christ rules and reigns. And uh, we thank you that that rule and that reign is unlike anything we largely experience in our human um, parliaments and and governments and, and, and kingships. Father, we thank you that in Jesus Christ we have this ultimate example of what uh, true kingship looks like. Uh, Humility, um, sacrifice, uh, laying down one's lives for the sakes of others and uh, putting the needs of others before our own. And so we pray for parliaments, um, both in other nations uh, at this time as they face um, significant voting coming up, also in our own uh, country in small ways in states. Um, Father, we pray for all politicians at local, uh, state, uh, national and and other national levels and um, We just ask that those people who belong to you, those who have faith in you through Jesus Christ, who are in our parliament serving, and of which there are many around this world, we pray that they would have your wisdom in these times, uh, to stand up for what's right, uh, to know when to be quiet, when to speak up, and uh, Father, most of all, that you would reassure them of your uh, ultimate um, sovereignty in all all matters. And so we we go forward... um, into our lives in this world, as always with confidence um, that you are a God who is in total control and that one day uh, all the struggles, all the wrongs, all the injustices in this world will be put right once and for all in Jesus Christ. And we look forward uh, to that great day uh, when that happens. Furthermore, locally, we thank you for our, our, our church family. We pray for those who are suffering at this time and in our community. And... Uh, with, uh, with so many things going on and so much uncertainty, we're aware that this is sort of a, a more long-term suffering that people are going to be facing. 
And so we pray for those in terms of employment. Uh, we pray for those in terms of business. Uh, we pray uh, for all of us as families in our neighbourhoods, um, that you would help us as your people to remain confident in you and to be beacons of hope and uh, lives of love uh, towards our neighbours and those in our community and towards each other. Uh, we thank you, Father, that you've given us Jesus as our model and we look to him to be the one that we follow. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Starting from verse 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing, uh, holy and, and cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are all members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Well, if you were here last Sunday, um, I believe I missed out on, uh, on hearing from... Um, well, I know I missed out on hearing from Pete Davies, and I've had some great encouraging feedback. Um, Pete Davies was visiting last Sunday, and uh, he came and did... Um, he, he's thrown me right under the bus. Um, I understand that he preached two different sermons, a, a fresh sermon at each service, and I heard that, I thought, gee, Pete, thank you, you know, um, just raise the bar. Um, and, and a few people were quite impressed. They said he even had PowerPoint slides for the second one. It wasn't like he was winging it. And I said, yeah, of course he's got, you know, anyway. Um, just know we're going to continue being on the same page as God's people and continue hearing uh, the same message in both services. Um, but look, Pete's a great guy and I, I trust you were really blessed by his ministry. Uh, I've had some good feedback and uh, I'm particularly thankful for Pete doing that. I've wanted to have him come and speak to us at some time and uh, he did it at a time where his wife has been quite unwell and is recovering from that stroke. So um, keep him and her, June is her name, in your prayers as well. Well, this morning we're looking at marriage, and usually when we talk about marriage, um, I usually give people a heads up, we put something on the Facebook church page, marriage is uh, the topic for the next two Sundays. Um, I've preached extensively on marriage in the past, particularly as marriage has been a bit of a hot topic in our community uh, some years ago. You know, we went from being a society that didn't want anything to do with marriage at all, it's just a religious thing, to suddenly wanting everyone and anyone to be able to get married, um, you know, sort of 10 years, a very quick, swift change which led to a, 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 an act of parliament being changed to redefine uh, marriage as we, uh, as we know it and as we will continue to know it as God's people. And so I haven't really spoken much about it and as we've come through uh, Ephesians 
uh, we're now up to this passage where the Apostle Paul talks profoundly about marriage. I'm really excited about today. Uh, also, next Sunday, we're going to have this same passage. We're just going to look at it a bit differently next Sunday. And the reason why we don't, I don't put it up on the Facebook page, I thought, I'll bet, I'll bet there'll be a number of blokes in particular who go, oh, I don't think we need to come to church this Sunday, you know, and there'll be a number of wives trying to drag the whole family there and so on. So anyway, I'm glad that you're here. There's no accident that you are here. God brings us all here for a good reason and we need to hear his word. But when, when we do speak about marriage, uh, you just need to know it's actually a really challenging thing to speak about because my marriage, Melissa and I's marriage, is, is no different to anyone else's marriage. And usually in the past, I've got this T-shirt shirt that says, my wife is awesome. And, and normally in the past, I've kind of started off a message on marriage and I wear that shirt and it's kind of like a public penance, right? It's kind of like a way of, you know, I've just got to start off on the front foot. My wife is awesome. and There's nothing said on the back about me, that's for sure. Um, so I just want to acknowledge that there are a couple of important things to say as we start looking at this topic. Um, and we need to know that the Apostle Paul writing this is not writing at some perfect marriage enrichment seminar weekend. Okay, he's not writing to a bunch of couples in marriage who've got this perfect marriage. They've got a perfect spouse. They've got no stresses in their married life. Everything's going swimmingly. Uh, Paul is writing God's word, as he, as all of the writers of God's word, in, in real time to real people in the real world. And this also means he's not writing with the idea that there's this list of things that you just need to do or a set program to follow that'll guarantee you such a thing as a perfect marriage. That's not what Paul is writing in this passage. And the reason why it's important for us to know that is because often we can think that's what the Bible does, particularly when we read the teachings in the New Testament. Uh, and this second half of Ephesians especially, it gets very practical and it's very tip-orientated. But I want for us this morning to be looking at this passage in the context of the whole letter and the purpose for which Paul wrote it to us. Um, we're not going to be saying everything there is to be said about marriage, certainly not this morning. Hopefully over the two weeks um, we'll come away with a, a good sense of it. Um, so yeah, that, just be aware of that. And the third thing I want to say too is this, that marriage is difficult. Marriage relationships are difficult. In fact, they're the most difficult, I think, of all relationships. They're the most difficult and they're also potentially the most rewarding. And, uh, and they're challenging and they, they take hard work. And there's no such thing as a carefree, effortless, content marriage all the time. We get glimpses of it, we get moments of it, um, but for any significant, at any significant depth or any length of time, this idea of some blissful, never-ending, carefree, effortless, content marriage is actually a fallacy. It's, um, it's romantic, but it's idealism. And I think you would all know what I mean if we're going to be honest here this morning. Many of us, most of us here this morning can think of just how challenging and difficult at times our marriage relationships can be. And I'm looking down here so I don't see any elbows going like this, okay, because that's not what this is about. <laughs> There's also something else to say. For a small number of us here this morning, the struggle and challenge has led to a dysfunctional marriage. And sometimes that dysfunction can at some point break down and it can lead to separation or even to divorce. And if that's you this morning, I just want to reassure you of God's love for you. God loves you deeply. And, uh, 
God is the one who gave us the, the gift of marriage. He's also the God who knows just how hard marriage can be for us. And uh, I know that some churches have often been known as those that are quick to pass judgment. You know, we, we know how beautiful and precious marriage can be and we know what it's meant to be as an ideal and we sometimes, hopefully not intentionally, but sometimes we come across as looking down upon those who, who've struggled uh, and who, whose marriages have failed. And so let me encourage you to know that you're not under any judgment as far as I'm concerned or the leadership of this church. And any Christians that do pass judgment, well, we've got to exercise grace towards them because they're at a pretty young and early stage of their faith development, really, aren't they? Um, life can be difficult particularly in the area of marriage. In fact, in all areas of life, sin persists, pervades and it poisons even the best of intentions that we might have of wanting to enjoy this great gift that God has given us. And yet there's always this, there's always hope, there's always forgiveness and there's always restoration that God promises us when we seek him and humble ourselves before him. And that can be sometimes even as a result of, even after a broken marriage even as a single person who's come through a marriage that hasn't worked. There is always forgiveness and restoration um, when we seek God. He meets us in our struggles. And I know many of you here uh, in our church have experienced that. And uh, God knows what that struggle is like. You know, the Old Testament is a, a verse that often gets, has been in the past wielded around to sort of ward us off the horrors of ending up being divorced. And it's that passage in the Old Testament that says, God hates divorce. And it's often singled out as this, you know, God hates divorce, so don't get divorced because God hates it and you're living a life displeasing to God. And, you know, we've, we've been using that verse so wrong. Um, it's always in the context of prophecy. It's a message to Israel, to God's people. And, you know what, the reason why God hates divorce is because who actually likes divorce? There's no one that likes divorce. No one going through divorce likes it. God has created us in his image. He knows exactly what's hurtful and harmful to us. And he hates it when he sees those created in his image suffering. And so that's why God hates divorce, because he knows that we hate it and he knows that it's hurtful and harmful and uh, causes a lot of pain to us. So I trust that's an encouragement. Um, with all that said, we're here this morning. Uh, I really want us to be encouraged. I, I hope that we can be strengthened um, to know God and to know that he has revealed to us um, some specific things about Christian marriage through his word. And this message today and, and next Sunday is, is for all of us. It doesn't matter if you are married, if you have been married, if you've only ever been single, um, or perhaps you are divorced or you're separated. Um, whatever situation that you are in, this is a message uh, from God, from his word. And I trust and I've been praying in preparation for this, that this will be in some ways an encouragement and a form of strength to all of us. Well, here we are back in Ephesians. And uh, the first half, just a reminder, Paul has painted this glorious picture of the power of the gospel, of the wonder of who we are in Christ, our identity in Christ, the position and place of the church. And uh, it's been a wonderful um, theoretical description of, of this greatest news on earth. And in the second half of Ephesians, Paul starts helping us to join the dots. 
He's helping us to join the dots between that glorious, magnificent image and picture of who we are and our identity in Christ and joining the dots with the real nitty-gritty of everyday life. And so this is the beginning of what's called the household code, where he goes through and he starts talking to us in our everyday lives as, as um, members of, of families. And he starts with uh, marriage and goes on to children and he goes on to uh, employ us as employers and employees and, um, and then he goes into spiritual warfare and gets into some real practical nitty-gritty but there's always a danger when we come across passages like this. Uh, because if we rip them apart or we preach on them separate to the first half, they can end up becoming just a list of rules, a list of ideas and, and good advice um, to pass around. Practical tips for Christian living, you may have heard them described as sometimes. And, and the sad thing is, if that's all they are, practical tips for Christian living, if they're separated from the gospel, if they have nothing to do with Jesus... Um, then we really, then we really fail to understand the purpose of God's word. And so, in this topic this morning, we're going to be be looking at marriage, and we're going to look at particularly what the gospel, what Jesus has to do with marriage. And first of all, we're going to look at what Paul says about Jesus. Then we're going to look at how Paul applies that to marriage, the image of marriage that we know of, the symbol of marriage. And then we'll have a look at a couple of ways that we can completely miss the point in this passage. And one way that if we listen and can take hold of, we'll get this message right. So first up, uh, before anything else, we need to know that marriage is actually all about Jesus. Marriage is all about Jesus. Before anything else, I I know Paul is directly, obviously, uh, speaking to wives and to husbands, but he goes on, as you can see in that passage we've had read, that it's actually all about Jesus. That's the first focus he turns us towards. I wonder why he would do that. Why would, why would Paul do that? Well, he does that because he knows that nothing can possibly hope to change us or transform our marriages like each of us seeing Jesus and understanding what he's done for us. I can stand here and I can talk about all the needs of men and women, pretend I know about the, the second half, um, or ha- having good communication skills and, and how important those things are. We can, I can give you all those numbers of tips and good ideas, um, some of which I've even tried and used. Um, they are good and they can be helpful, but Paul's, Paul knows what's really important. Paul knows what's really going to be needed for us to change. He knows what's powerful enough to transform our marriages. Our hearts, when they grasp the beauty and the value of Jesus and what he's done for us. That's what we really need. That's what we really need and that's what God blesses us with in this passage. So Paul gives us this vision, verse 23, and this is what he says in verse 23. Christ is the head of the church, the body of which he is the saviour. Remarkable, isn't it? He's talking about marriage and he comes up with this declaration. It's almost like he's got off track. Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Here is what Paul says. He says that the church is actually his body, the body of of Christ. And you and I have heard that term before, that we're the hands and feet of of Jesus uh, and so on. And yet he's saying that the, that the church here is this um, kind of physical presence of, of Jesus Christ himself. And, and it's a remarkable thing. We can be too quick to dismiss it. God has chosen ordinary people like you and me, broken people, ordinary people like us. And he's chosen to have us represent him and point people to him and to actually be his uh, body and presence in this life. 
He himself is the saviour, we're not saviours. He himself is the saviour of the church. He's the one that saved us. He's the one uh, that has um, saved us through that salvation. He's the one that's, that's called us to be his, his body in this world and to be those that work at his kingdom. So what is it that Jesus Christ has done for the church? Well, we see it in verses 25 to 27. It says, Christ loved the church and he gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. What a remarkable description of us. Paul here is describing the extent of Jesus' love for us as the church. And it's absolutely amazing. Uh, If there's ever any doubt, Jesus loves the church. He loves his people. And Paul says, how much so? How How do we know that? Well, to the extent that he gave his life for us. To the extent that he gives his life up for her. And the context here he's talking about is that of marriage, of course. But Jesus, who is God, think about it, he's the one who's eternally praised. He's the one that loves the church so much that he came to offer up his life, to die for us, to give us his righteousness and to take upon himself our sin and wretchedness. He loved the church so much that he died for us. Hebrews 12, um, 2 puts it this way. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. That's a remarkable passage. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Jesus loved the church so much that he willingly suffered. Through not only physical agony, but the agony of bearing our sins. And the agony of bearing uh, the wrath of God, the, the righteous and justified wrath of God towards us. And he did it for what purpose? He did it so that he could make us holy. And the Hebrew says there that this was a joy that was set before him. That's why he went through it. He was doing it for us. He was doing it to make us, the church, holy. And to set us aside, to to, to call us out from the world and set us aside for himself. So we have this beautiful picture of Jesus loving the church so much that he dies for it. And that he enters into a relationship so intimate and tender and, and so uh, caring that he compares it to marriage. And the result, according to Ephesians uh, chapter 5, verse 27, is this, uh, that we're going to be presented to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. What Paul is saying is, is that the church, which looks so blemished and imperfect here today, I'm sorry, that's just how you are, it's how I am. I know that's how I look. I've been in the sun all day yesterday, which I'll talk about in a moment. Um, but I know that we're, we've got blemish and wrinkles and, and um, we're imperfect. That's what Paul's saying here. He's saying that the church, uh, which today looks blemished, uh, imperfect, um, we will one day be so transformed by what Jesus has done for us that we will become and we will remain more stunning than the most magnificent, glorious bride you can imagine. Now, yesterday I had the privilege, um, Melissa and I, of being a part of, uh, of a wedding. So, you know, many of you may know Josh and Joanna, or, or if you don't, you would certainly know of their family. So, Josh is a uh, middle child of uh, Rob and um, Kathy Alley, and Joanna is uh, the daughter, one of the daughters of um, Gary and Beth Wolno. Uh, both uh, families worship in our church. 
And um, it's a real privilege, as it always is, to be part of someone's wedding. And uh, Joe Ann's dad, Gary, has had this dual role yesterday. Uh, he has been a pastor, and uh, it was, uh, he was really, Joe was very keen for him to, to marry them. And it was a beautiful thing. So I had a small part in the service uh, to, to officially, officially register it and so on. Um, but because Gary is Joanna's father, um, he had two roles in the wedding. He was both the father of the bride and he was also leading the marriage ceremonies, the pastor. Uh, but right at the start, because he's got the first role, right, he's with her. So I had to start at the front. And this is where, where we usually are at, as, as celebrants. And um, as part of that role, what gets me every single time is standing alongside the groom... And I just want to share this as I did this morning. Groomsmen are hopeless. I don't know what it is. Why they can't line up straight just is beyond me. And I get people every time, seriously. Um, and then there was a time they'd listen. Now they don't even listen. Say, so, oh, whatever, it's your photos. Um, I'm, I'm in the centre, you know. Uh, but anyway, that aside, I'm standing next to the groom, and that's who it's all about, the groom and the bride. And uh, I said at the rehearsals to Josh, and for those of you who don't know Josh, if you want to know Josh, you've only got to know Rob. The, I think they're the most similar out of the, out of the two in the family. And, um, and so he's standing there and I said, oh, and I say this, I say, so have you got some tissues and a hanky? And he goes, oh, no, no, I'll be right, you know, I'll be fine. And, uh, and he says, oh, he goes, oh, maybe, as a rehearsal went on, oh, maybe I should. Yeah, maybe I should. I said, I would, I'm telling you, that's what I'd do. Have some, anyway. Sure enough, the time come, and we're watching him, and, I, and sometimes I get a little bit involved as well. Um, we're watching him, and as Beth comes to the end of the aisle, sorry, not Beth, that's the mother-in-law, um, as Joanne comes to the end of the aisle with, uh, with Gary, I, I think Josh nearly fell over. He kind of went, he's like, he, I saw him just sort of sway forward. <laughs> he, was, he was gobsmacked, and he certainly needed his hanky. And one of his groomsmen, I thought, was the best man was great. He was like, he was really rubbing his back gently and sort of going, oh, like really trying to wind, wind him up. You know, we were all determined to get him to cry. So, um, anyway, there we were there. But what what a magnificent symbol! Some of you may remember your own weddings, uh, or weddings you've been a part of, uh, weddings you've seen. It, it catches everyone's breath, doesn't it, for that moment when the bride comes down the aisle and is presented beautifully and perfectly to her husband to be. And that's why we do this at weddings, because it's a symbol of the bride being presented to her groom. Well, this is who we are as the church. We together are the bride of Christ. And, and um, he is the bridegroom. He's the groom, and we're the bride. And, and this is how we as the church will one day be presented to Jesus. What's interesting about this passage is it's got a future uh, element to it. It's, we are, at, at the moment, we are the bride of Christ. We have this relationship with Christ, most definitely. But the image here of, of the bride being presented to Jesus is the future one. It's about, it's about that time on that day when we will be presented complete and without blemish and pure and radiant as a bride. That's an amazing thing, isn't it, to think about? That's what we'll be. And there's hope for us. When we're honest and we go, gee, I don't feel very radiant or, you know, certainly not without wrinkles, and I'll speak for myself. Um, I'm surprised Paul included that in the passage there, but anyway, a brave man. Um, but there is a day coming when we will be presented perfect and radiant uh, to Jesus and fully. Now, gentlemen, this morning, I'm aware that this has been a lot of imagery around brides and, and uh, we're the church and we're, we're brides, and some of you are probably thinking, Probably finding it a bit of a challenge to identify with this, with this picture, this image. I just want to say, 
we need to be reminded as men that we can actually work at this picture and we can get it and we need to uh, being the bride of Christ as part of the church in the same way that women have for centuries and for years had to understand the image that they are sons of God, right? So I think we can do that and I think that's okay and I want you to join me in being humble and learning from this biblical image uh, of us all together as the church being the beautiful bride of Christ. Well, not only is Jesus our bridegroom, we are his bride. But verse 29 also says that Christ feeds and nourishes the church in the present, in the here and now. So Christ, as our bridegroom, is providing everything needed for the nourishment and growth of us, the church, his bride. He wholeheartedly, tenderly and completely cares for the church out of his deep love for her. And what Paul describes here is, has two implications for us. The first one is this, that it should really change our view of the church. Not of marriage just yet, but of the church. Don't ever mistake or make the mistake of devaluing what church is. And many of us are tempted to do that. We live in a society today that continues to devalue church and any religion for that matter and, uh, and continues to go its own way and so on and its own strength and um, and we can get this kind of mindset that, oh, you know, we ought to start believing it, start walking around going, oh, this isn't real and it doesn't feel very strong or confident. Um, or we can get really angry about it you know, and demand that, hey, we're, we're the church, we're meant to be this, we, we should be back at the centre of all things. But whatever it is we do, don't devalue what it means to be the church. We're not very much in and of ourselves. In fact, most churches aren't. And churches that look polished and everything like that, and, all, and I know a lot of us have seen these on, online, particularly over the last months, uh, it, it, that's like makeup. Like it is. It's, it's like makeup and, you know, getting your hair done, everything. Yeah, it looks great. But the reality is, <laughs> in and of ourselves, we're not much. We sure don't look like much. But in Christ, we are absolutely everything. We are absolutely everything. We are much, not because of who we are, but because of Christ's love for us. And he's at work within us and he's transforming us so that one day we will be absolutely stunning. We need a much higher view of who we are as the church. Not because of who we are ourselves, but because of who we are becoming in Christ Jesus. But the second thing that this means is that we need to be absolutely amazed, don't we? And stunned afresh by Jesus and what he's done for us. This is a picture of how much Jesus Christ loves us. And it ought to leave us amazed. It ought to leave us kind of speechless. And if you need time to go away and reflect on it, please do so over this week and the following week as well. When we get this, when we really get and understand this, this will change everything about us and it will especially change our marriages, which we'll look at in more detail next Sunday. So that's what this passage tells us about Jesus. Paul goes in an unusual direction from here because he takes what's true about Jesus, which we all know and can agree to, and then he applies it to our earthly marriages. So the big picture is this. Our marriages, if we're followers of Jesus, are to become reproductions in miniature of Christ and his church. Hasn't that just raised the bar? Not because we've got to strive harder to be better husbands or better wives, but because of that wonderful representation that our relationship is. It's actually a representation, a miniature reproduction in a small way of Christ and his church. So marriage reflects Jesus and his church. 
We're called to make our marriages like that, that uh, parallels, examples, types of the kinds of relationship and radical love that Christ and church have for each other. And, and when we apply the gospel to our marriage, we become models and we become examples of that ultimate relationship. Remember again that Paul isn't writing here to ideal marriages. Uh, he's not writing to people married perfectly. Um, this is way more than just idealism here and romanticism. Paul is saying that the way to transform our marriages is for us to see Christ clearly so that he becomes not just our motivation, but he also becomes the very model uh, for how we live in our marriages. And can I say, dipping into a little bit of next Sunday, of most significance, you know who this is of most significance to? This gives incredible worth and value to women. You see, when Paul wrote this, in the times that he wrote it, women were viewed very poorly. Uh, they still are in many parts of the world today, but I will go as far as saying nowhere have they been more devalued than they were around the first century when this letter was written. Did you know Jewish men at the time? These are, these are God's people, okay? Jewish men who went to the temple, worshipped Yahweh, uh, claimed to keep his law perfectly, were, you know, godly men, this is what they would do in their daily prayers. This is what it meant to be a Jewish man. You ready? This is, a, this is from history. Their daily prayers were this. Thank you, God, that I'm not a Gentile, that I'm not a slave or a woman. That's fair income. You can check that out in any historical book. The Jewish law didn't see women, and by that I mean the law that Israel had invented and crept around and added to God's law. The Jewish law didn't see women as persons, but as things. They were, they were objects they were for reproduction, to grow a great family, to have good things and to take care of the men, basically. That's God's people, okay? We often get romantic about the Old Testament, God's people. And we, we, no, that's what they were. That's how they interpreted God's law. Women had no legal rights whatsoever. And you know what? It was even worse in the Greek world, in the pagan world at the time. So, so that bad example of God's people were the best amongst the worst. Men were not even expected to be friends. In fact, you, weren't, you, you, you didn't relate to a woman, to your wife as a friend in any way, or your wives as a friend in any way whatsoever. And Paul comes along into this, knowing the gospel, being impacted by the gospel, and this is what he writes. He comes and he turns by applying the gospel to this relationship. He just flips that whole thing on its head. And he says that marriage is a model of the ultimate human relationship and that women are to be loved just as Christ loved the church. That's a remarkable thing. You know, you know what's fascinating about this too? I tried to demonstrate it in Melissa and I both reading this together, is that this passage, Paul, who does Paul spend most of his time writing to? It's to the men. <laughs> it's to the men. There's only one verse relating to women, one, one at the start and one at the end. He's writing to the men, and there's a reason for that. It's the men that needed to hear this. It's the men that needed to be transformed by the gospel, not the women. Women didn't need to learn to submit more. <laughs> they couldn't submit any further. They were second rate, lower, lower than low. The men were the ones that had to listen to what Paul was challenging us on and still does today about marriage and about the impact the gospel has on our relationships. Husbands are to be committed to the total well-being of their wives, especially spiritually. They provide in the same way Christ provides for us and uh, we love in the same selfless, sacrificial way that Christ 
loved uh, and laid down his life for us. And, and the purpose of this is so that uh, our wives become um, splendorous, that th- their beauty is unsurpassed. And, and we do that because that's exactly what Christ is doing with us as a church, because he loves us. Notice that Paul says to the wives, wives, submit yourselves to, uh, to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. That's verse 22 at the start. And, and I know many people might have questions about this and we'll look at it further, uh, a bit deeper next Sunday um, and in a moment too. But, you know, in light of him telling wives or encouraging wives uh, what to do here in submitting to their husbands, what is it you think Paul is going to say to the husbands? And if it was really this kind of subordination thing, don't you think he'd say, and you husbands, um, exercise authority over your wives. You have dominion and rule and reign over your wives. But he doesn't. In fact, there's none of that language in there at all, even though many of us have tried to read into it. It's not even close. Look at what he says. Husbands, love your wives, verse 25. And then he gives the model. He goes straight to Jesus. Husbands, love your wives. Husbands are to love their wives just as much as Jesus loves the church. In fact, they're to love their wives just as much as they love them, love themselves, which, if we're honest, is um, pretty fair, pretty fair standard. Yeah, they are to give themselves to her, and Jesus is the standard. I hope you can see, gentlemen, this morning, just how radical this is, how it speaks to the value of our wives. You know, many people um, in this day and age, on that verse, verse twenty-two, they choke on it the verse that speaks of women submitting to their husbands, but notice carefully what it means. The word here does not speak of value in any way, okay? Uh, We know that the scriptures clearly teach from start to finish uh, that women, and particularly at the beginning, that women and men have been created equal in the image of God, that we both equally bear the image of God, we're image bearers of God, uh, and therefore they are equally valuable, we are both equally valuable before God. And note too that it doesn't say that women should submit to all men in general. It actually says that women are to submit to their husband. And the original language, and I like to raise this even though it can sound obnoxious sometimes, but this is really important. In the original language, this is written written in what's called the middle voice. And that means it's actually not a demand and it's certainly not a command. This is, this is a, a, it's, a, it's a, like a voluntary it's, it's a voluntary command if you, if you, if you, or um, directive. It's free and, and, and a voluntary choice. It's not something that men are authorised to enforce and go and weaponise. And, and so this idea of biblical submission is not in any way a demeaning thing and neither is it a hierarchical thing. And I know that some churches teach differently and I know some Christians believe differently, uh, but I, I'm, I'm, I can't, I'm at a loss as to how you can see that in light of the gospel. There's not, it, it, this is not being written so that wives would be diminished in any way. It's so that the relationship can reflect that relationship between Christ and his church, the ultimate relationship that any of us could have. Now, some of us may have a lot more questions and want to talk about that a bit more, and that's fine. Uh, send me an email. I love, love chatting about that sort of thing. Uh, I hope that we will get to some of them in, in next Sunday in particular. Um, But I hope you can see what Paul is getting at here. He wants our marriages to be changed. Not by trying harder or communicating better, even though those things are really good, so keep it up. Um, But he wants us uh, to be changed because we see every day just how much Jesus loves us. And we see him as our model 
and our motivation for our own marriages. Well, as we close, let's look at the, 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 really quickly the two ways that we can miss what Paul is saying here and the one way that we can get it really well. You know what the real challenge is here? And this is just about every controversial part of, the, of, of God's word. The real challenge here, especially in a passage like this, is to try and capture and say precisely what Paul was trying to capture and say and write to his original hearers, his first hearers. Some of us forget that. We forget that God, in his wisdom, gave us his word grounded fair and square in history. And we've got to understand the context into which it was written. We need to understand the context to whom it was written. And we need to understand and humbly do so without imposing our own values or our own views today and reading into them. It's a common mistake. It's the struggle we've got to always work with in God's word. Some of us will err on the side of being too soft with this passage. Some of us will go, you know what, that's typical of the church to make women have to submit to their husbands. And so we've just got to, we've got to rid ourselves of that. It's too soft. Um, and the parts like that are really hard to hear in our culture, you know. Equality in our culture today is what? What's equality at its heart all about? It's about the exertion of, of rights. It's saying that I have the right to be, to be equal and it's, in, it's in, in quality as well as in, in, in quantity. It's, it's, it's like this kind of 50-50 thing. Uh, and, and so it's all about rights. Um, equality has nothing to do with submission, okay, in our culture. So this is offensive, I get that. Um, so the verses about wives submitting to husbands is offensive to our modern sensibilities and our idea of what we think equality is. And we'll look at this more next, next Sunday. Um, so when I said to you, you know, it's, a, it's equal like this, I'm not talking about equality as we, we hear about today, it's different. Sometimes we go soft on Paul's words about wives submitting to husbands and we miss out on what the passage says. But, you know, we also miss out on what the passage says when we try to say more by saying things that aren't really there. Like using uh, these verses to rule over and to lord it over our wives as husbands. Men, and that's who I'm speaking to just as Paul is speaking to us. This is something that we have been far too long guilty of and the church has failed miserably in that. Too soft, too hard. There are some of us who want to take scissors and cut out parts of the Bible and there are others of us who want to add parts and want to clarify and put words in and meanings and try and figure out what it is, usually to our own personal favour, what Paul was trying to say. Well, either of those views totally misses the point of God's word. And so the real question for us this morning is this, and I love how Tim Keller puts it. I can't remember how he puts it, so I'll waffle on and try, but it's like this. Think of it this way when it comes to um, how we hear from God, okay? If God is God, wouldn't you expect at some point to be contradicted by him or, or to be shown that you're wrong, to have a, a, an opinion, a perspective that, oh, I might be wrong? If you're always right about God in every single thing that you say and believe, then can I politely suggest to you that maybe your views and your perspective and your opinion has become God. You, you know what I'm saying? If God is God, we're not God. <laughs> Therefore, um, what, what, we, what we, need, we, need to, we need to come up against sometimes, recognising that where our beliefs are in contradiction to God. And so these, uh, uh, there, there are parts of the scriptures, and this is one of them, that don't say what we like them to say. Sometimes they're out of step with the times. But here's what I know about the times. This is the reality, right? You and I in our times, 
you know how critical we are of those that have gone before us. In 50 years' time, there's going to be a whole generation, should the Lord tarry, um, who are going to be looking at us and going, what were they thinking? What were they teaching? Okay? So we need to always be humble when it comes to thinking we've arrived. Um, what God says is always above the current trends. It's always beyond the fashions that come and go and that change. So please come prepared. And that's what we need to be. Those who are humble, to listen to what God says, even if it's challenging at times. Uh, and if it is challenging, well, that's perhaps a sign that maybe God is speaking. So let me close this morning with the one way that we really can get this. And this is to think about Jesus to begin to think of all that he's done for us and that's what we're going to move into now in this time of communion as we reflect and as we remember and celebrate. Think about and meditate on the gospel, the extraordinary wonder and love of Jesus Christ and it will begin to change you. And the more we want our own marriages to be models uh, of that relationship, of that ultimate human relationship, uh, the more Christ will be at work in us and the more others will see who they can become in Christ as well. And it'll be completely different to anything the world has seen because it's a radical, radical calling that we've been given. So the best way to improve your marriage, the best way to strengthen your marriage is to once again come to the foot of the cross and be gripped by God's goodness to us. I'm going to pray and then uh, we're going to listen to a song to worship to and you can hum and, and worship to it. And you know, there's a point in the song... Um, where, and it's actually our local people leading us this time. It's not some polished... Well, no, they're very polished, but it's not some other polished, um, polished group. You'll, you'll, they're not behind the curtains, but they'll be up there as if they are behind the curtains. Anyway, we're going to focus our minds uh, on, on the Lord's Supper at this time. And um, there's a part in that which talks about the resurrection. It sort of tells the story of Jesus and his death and what he's done for us. And then if you want to stand at that point, I felt like standing in the morning service and I heard a few people shuffle. And so if you'd like to stand, you're more than welcome to stand or you can raise a hand or whatever it is that you want to do because it's a, it's a little, the least we can do in worshipping. But let me pray. Let's listen to that. And uh, during the song, if the helpers can come down and we will move into a time of communion. Father, I pray today that you would help us see Jesus each and every day in our lives. Help us see beyond our own perspectives, our own opinions, our own um, cultures that we're born into and so readily absorb, even without thinking. Help us to see the extent of his love for us. May, Father, we truly grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge. I pray that this love would begin to shape our marriages uh, uh, more and more, I pray that we would continue to become models of that relationship that you uh, in Christ have with us as the church. And may Christ's love begin to transform our marriages uh, even in this time as we gather and reflect upon uh, the example of self-sacrifice that Jesus gave to us. And we pray this in his name. Amen.